Um, You can be turning in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 29 this morning, Genesis 29. This morning we're picking back up with our friend Jacob. Uh, We took a brief break last week when we did church in the park and Pastor Will preached on what is the church and we're getting back into our Genesis series talking about the origins And this morning, where we pick up with our friend Jacob, Jacob, you remember, is the son of Isaac and Rebekah, and he's on a mission from his father. His father and mother have sent him out and said, hey, you need to go find a wife. And you need to go take a wife from one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. And so Jacob leaves Beersheba, and he starts on what will be a 500-mile trek towards Haran, where he's going to see his uncle Laban. And along the way, he comes to a point of just desperation, aloneness, discouragement. It's at that moment where Pastor Will preached two weeks ago where Jacob has his first interaction, personal interaction with God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and now the God of Jacob. It is this interaction that God says in Genesis 28, 15, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. And this is where our story in Genesis 29 picks up, where Jacob has this new spring in his step, new life. He is refreshed because he knows now that God is on his side. That the stories he has heard from his father and grandfather are not just stories, but they are now personal to him because he has a relationship with God. He feels confident, so he's off to Haran. He's off to find love, but as we'll read, he finds much more than just that. This morning, we're going to, to see three things. First, that God graciously leads sinners Second, that God sovereignly uses sinners. And third, that God lovingly blesses sinners. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Genesis 29. If you don't, text will be on the screen or we'd love to gift one to you at the info bar. I invite all of you to stand for the reading of God's word. We will read the entirety of this chapter, Genesis 29. And then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. And he looked and he saw a well in the field. And behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of the well the flocks were watered, the stone of the well's mouth was large. And when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in place over the mouth of the well. And Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? And they said, We are from Haran. And he said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, We know him. And he said to them, Is it well with him? And they said, It is well. And see, his daughter Rachel is coming with the sheep. And he said, Behold, it is still high day. Is it not time for the livestock to be gathered together? Water the sheep and go, pasture them. But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. And then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep 
for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. And then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept out loud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. And as soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. And Jacob told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. And then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. And Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. And Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you for seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. And Laban said, It is better I give her to you than I should give her to another man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel. And they seemed to him but a few days because he was in love, because of the love he had had for her. And then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? And Laban said, It is not so done so in our country, to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving another seven years. So Jacob did so and completed her week, and Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and served Laban for another seven years. And when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son and called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called him Simeon. And again she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name shall be called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time... I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah, then ceased bearing. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Let us pray. Our Father, this morning we come to you. We ask for your help in looking at this passage that just seems to be a mess of human life and sin. We pray that you would help us to understand it, that you would work in our hearts, that you would remove any distractions that might be going on in our minds so that we can focus on you. 
that as we look at this text, we will grow in our love and confidence of you and that we will seek to only find satisfaction in your name. We pray all of these things in your son's precious and holy name. Amen. You may be seated. This probably, in reading this, parents, I apologize that it's Family Sunday, that it sounds like a sick and twisted soap opera. You might find yourself even asking the question, like, where is God in this text? We read these 35 verses and see his name is really only mentioned a couple times. We could perhaps take this chapter out of the Bible and give it to someone who has no familiarity with the Bible and say, read this and tell me what you think of it. And they might look and say, like, what kind of horrible story is this? Who writes this kind of thing? But the reality is, is that this is a very true story about real people. And in fact, it's about God working through the whole of it, even the sinfulness and deceit. This is a love story. We don't have to look too hard to see that it's about Jacob's love for Rachel. But we also see that it is a story of lies and deception, that Laban is tricking Jacob, and now Jacob, if you remember your biblical history, is getting a taste of his own medicine, for he is the great deceiver in his family, stealing from his older brother the blessing that was meant to be given to him by fooling and tricking his aging, blind father. But more important than love and lies, it's about the workings of God through such sinful people to carry carry out his amazing redemptive plan, no matter the mistakes, the deception, the sinfulness, the wickedness of people whom God chose to make his name great through, that his plan will not be stopped. We can see first that God graciously leads sinners in verses 1 through 20. As Jacob comes to the end of that 500-mile trek from Beersheba, he saw a well in the field, verse 2 says, and came upon it and asked the shepherds, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they say, we do. And Jacob must be saying like, man, what luck. What are the odds that I'd come to a land that I have no experience in and I would find a well and I would know, find shepherds who know who Laban is? And we know that that's not true. It's not luck that Jacob happened upon this well. And if that isn't lucky enough for him, Jacob asks about good old Uncle Laban. And the shepherds say, yeah, we know him. But even more than that, here comes his daughter, with the sheep to water them. Laban's daughter happened to be bringing the sheep at the well at the exact moment Jacob arrives and asks about Uncle Laban. God is graciously leading a very sinful person. Remember, Jacob is not one that you want your children acting like. Lying, deceiving, tricking you. He's like, parents, your children, you're like, hey, this is what you don't want to be like. You don't want to be like Jacob. Because he is a deceiver, he is a liar. And then we read about Rachel. And Rachel must have been a sight to behold because Jacob makes it very clear that he does not want the shepherds hanging around. He wants them gone. In verse 7, he says, Behold, it is still high day. 
It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go and pasture them, which is Jacob's way of saying, get out of here, buzz off. I don't want you anywhere around while I'm meeting Rachel. And I think part of the reason he does this is he says like, hey, it's not the end of the day when you typically would water the sheep. You guys are being lazy, just hanging around, just move the stone, get out of here so I can take care of business. And so Jacob, he says this, and then the beauty Rachel starts walking closer and closer, and somehow miraculously he summons this massive strength to move the wellstone. And part of the reason the shepherds are gathering together is the stone is so large it takes multiple men to move it, but the adrenaline and the sight of Rachel just gives Jacob all the strengths he needs to move it. And then if that's not enough, he says, sorry guys, I move the stone ladies first because he is a real gentleman. And we need to put ourselves in the mind of Jacob because if you recall, Jacob knows a story very well of his parents' love story that Abraham in Genesis 24 would send a servant out in order to find Isaac a wife. And he came to Haran most likely to the same exact well, and that is where his mother was introduced to his father and their love story, that the servant Eleazar comes and finds her, and she is beautiful, and she waters the sheep. So in Jacob's mind, he's like, this is it. This is God's plan. What are the odds that I would come to the exact same well and see another beautiful girl who is of the same family This is God's gracious working. And so Jacob encounters the beautiful woman at the well who is the family, who is of the family that his father said, go and find a daughter of this man, Laban. And so Jacob moves the stone. He waters Rachel's sheep. And then after he waters the flock, it says he immediately kisses her and weeps uncontrollably. And then introduces who he is. Now for, in Bible times during this, it is not so abnormal to greet family members with a kiss, but it's strange that Jacob wouldn't first introduce who he is. Now it is Family Sunday, so students, let me just point something out, that this is not a prescription on how to find a wife. Do not go and find someone and kiss her and then weep uncontrollably because what will happen is what Rachel does is she runs and goes to her father, which is what I will instruct my daughters to do if someone comes up and kisses them. And maybe this is actually why Jacob wanted these shepherds to leave because he knows like the emotions that he has gone through in this really long journey that his emotions are just going to spill out. That as he sees that God has graciously led him along, he has had this interaction with God, and God says, I am going to be with you where you go. And he's just uncontrollable. Like, his urge, his excitement, his joy, and he just loses it and weeps. He is experiencing God's gracious leading in his life, that God surely would be with him wherever he went and complete the promises that he has made to him. Now, certainly God is not mentioned directly in this passage in these particular 
verses, unlike with Isaac's servant, Jacob doesn't stop at the well and pray for God's guidance. But God is clearly there guiding graciously Jacob's circumstances. Ephesians 1.11 says that God accomplishes all things according to the counsel of his will. And certainly, we see this throughout the scriptures. Like when Moses' mother puts him in a basket in the river and sends him away in order to protect his life. And Pharaoh's daughter just happened to be there at the river and she happened to feel, feel pity on Moses and take him to be her child in Exodus 2. Similarly, when the king of Persia set a decree for genocide of the Jews, it just so happened that a woman he married was a Jew named Esther. Or when Ruth the Moabite left her home and family to come to Israel, she just happened to pick grain in a relative's field who eventually she marries and cares for both Ruth and her mother-in-law. God is graciously leading sinners in his plan, that God graciously and sovereignly guides the circumstances of his people for his glory, despite their being sinners. Remember that Jacob is not the example to look to on the ideal follower of Yahweh. Again, but God does the same thing with you and me. That as imperfect as our situations may seem, maybe it's the city we live in, the family we were born into, the school that we attend, the job that we work, the difficulties that we face, the sins we do against other peoples and the sins that people do against us are all a part of God's beautiful tapestry for our lives to bring us to him and give him glory. In Psalm 139.16, the psalmist David says, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Meaning that God knew before any of us were born or even thought of as children that God knew exactly what our lives would hold. That God uses the good, the bad, the mundane, the great, the supernatural in order to shape and guide his people. All of the situations and all of the circumstances that we find ourselves in are God's way of graciously leading us to draw us to himself, to help us to trust him more. Friends, don't miss God's sovereign hand over your situation. You might think, I am in a not-so-great place right now, or the circumstance that I find myself in is so difficult, or I have a very close friend who I don't even know what to tell him because he's going through such a difficult time. Friends, let the circumstances we find ourselves in teach us, shape us, encourage us that God is always working. Even when we don't see it and even when we don't understand it. Because God's either in control of all things or he's in control of nothing. 
And now Jacob, after what I would consider unwise dating tactics, gets to meet the rest of the family in verses 13 through 20. Uncle Laban meets his nephew and hears about Jacob's life, how he got here, why he's running away from Esau, what he is looking for, and most of all, his puppy dog love towards Rachel. And Laban, being smart and cunning, asked Jacob, you shouldn't live for me and not be paid. Like, what should I pay you? Full well knowing he's going to get some more work out of Jacob. He says, what shall your wage be? And it's here we're introduced to another character. We get to meet Rachel's older sister, Leah, who, as the Bible says, eyes were weak. Now, many commentators have debated about what it means to have weak eyes. It could mean she couldn't see well. It could mean that she was cross-eyed. It could have meant that looking at her was not a pleasant thing. Regardless, whatever it is, it made her not suitable for marriage, not the ideal marriage material. And because of that fact in Bible times, it meant that she really added no value if she could not be married off. And so she's going to be a burden on her family for her whole life compared to Rachel, who's described as beautiful in form and appearance, meaning that she had all the curves in all the right places. And then the two men come to an agreement, and since Jacob has no wealth for a dowry, unlike his father's servant who came who had much wealth in camels and gold, he says, you know what, I'll work for you for seven years, which commentators speculate would have been the equivalent of two dowries because Jacob loves Rachel that much and he just wants to prove how much he loves her. But also because he loves her so much, verse 20 says, it felt like just a few days, seven years, which is where all of you go, aww, that's beautiful. But we see a quick turn of events in verse 21 through 30 where we see that God sovereignly uses sinners. Verse 21 reads, Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? And Laban said, it is not done so in our country to give the younger before the older. And you might be wondering a kind of obvious question is, how could Jacob be surprised? Like wedding ceremony, like why is he surprised in the morning when he wakes up that it's Leah instead of Rachel? Well, I think the most basic answer is that he was drunk that Laban probably made sure of it. He throws this grand party and festivities that go well into the evening. He makes sure that Jacob has plenty of beverage to have. 
And you'd think like there could have been some communication between Jacob and Leah, like, hey, I'm so glad that that ceremony is all over, things like that. But Laban knows Jacob isn't fully conscious of what is going on. And so he tricks him. And Jacob wakes up with Leah. And I know the saying goes that all's fair in love and war, but I think Uncle Laban has taken it one step too far. That not only is he tricking Jacob, but he is using Leah as though she has no value and says, this is a way I can marry off my worthless daughter. Which is really sad that any father could think so little of his own child. It must have occurred to Jacob that Laban had only done to him what he had done to his own father. In the dark, he thought he was touching Rachel as his father in the darkness of his blindness thought he was touching Esau when he attached fur to his arm. Robert Alter commentates on this passage and says he imagines the next day the conversation that must have happened between Jacob and Leah. That Jacob says to Leah, I called out Rachel in the dark and you answered why did you do that to me? And Leah says to him, well, your father called out Esau in the dark and you answered. Why did you do that to him? Even further connection is Uncle Laban claims that he has done nothing wrong, that it's just not how it's done in the land, that it's meant that the younger is given after the older. The firstborn gets married first. And yet again, there's that parallelism that Jacob the younger took Esau the older's blessing, which is the typical tradition. Jacob must have just been furious inside and then filled with so much sadness and remorse to think that that's the kind of pain and sorrow that I caused my own family that Jacob now sees and feels what it's like to be manipulated and deceived. That's why many who preach and teach and commentate on this passage title it The Deceiver Deceived, that Jacob is just getting a taste of his own medicine. Some could look at this passage and say, yeah, well, that's karma. That's what you get. But there's a different biblical principle at play here, and that's you reap what you sow. Galatians 6, 7 through 8 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For if one sows his own flesh, will reap from his own flesh corruption. And if it's not bad enough already, Uncle Laban doesn't stop and then says, you know what, I can, I can make this right. He says, finish out the wedding ceremony, a week-long ceremony. He says, and then I'll give you Rachel immediately. But then you have to stay and serve another seven years. Now he's willing to throw his own family into polygamy. And for kids, that means he has more than one spouse And he doesn't even blink. He doesn't even think. He doesn't even hesitate. What kind of father would do something like this? 
think Laban's life can be summarized as greedy, selfish, and abusive. And I think we also need to ask the question of the text is, what should have Jacob done? And I think the answer is he should have taken Leah, his wife, and went home. Because the God he claims to follow said that a marriage is a covenant union between one husband and one wife. But his desire to have Rachel, the beautiful daughter, blinds him to what God would want him to do in his life. And the sad fact is, is that history is full of Labans. It's not just a story in the Bible. Those who use others to get ahead of others, they lie, they cheat, they steal, they take advantage to get ahead, and they call it good business, aggressive leadership, good politics, survival of the fittest, male leadership. Some of these throughout history have borne the title of king and president, dictator, pastor, husband, father. But friends, God's purposes are not threatened even by the most powerful, even by the most wicked, even by the most abusive people of mankind. In Psalm 2, we can read how the nations rage against God. And it doesn't say that God sits on his throne, wringing his hands, saying, what am I going to do with all these wicked, powerful rulers? Instead, it says that he sits on his throne and laughs because he has no fears. We can look through the history of the Bible of wicked and powerful people and see that God actually uses them to sovereignly accomplish his plan. We see God hardening Pharaoh's heart. We see that he humbles King Nebuchadnezzar, that he strikes down Herod with worms, that Satan inspires Judas to betray Christ, which isn't enough to defeat him. Pilate decided to appease the Jews by crucifying Christ and says, here, I'll give you what you want. You can crucify Christ. But God, before the foundation of the world decided how it would be, that it would be this way, that Christ would come to earth, that he would die on the cross for the sins of you and me and wicked men like Laban, that these wicked men would act as instruments of God to provide a way of salvation for the rest of mankind that Christ's death and resurrection at the hands of sinful, powerful men would provide salvation for those same great, wicked, powerful men. For Laban, for you, for me. Because no one's sinfulness can thwart God's plan of redemption. He sovereignly uses sinners this doesn't sanction sin. This doesn't mean we can just do what, it, what we want, but it means that God is not hindered or stopped by the amount of sin we cause in this world. 
It means that mankind's sin and abuse of power cannot stand in the way of the almighty God to redeem the human race. We can see that history is really his story. And all of us have a divine part to play in the author's drama. And then we move on to see that God lovingly blesses these sinners, these wicked, awful sinners. Verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. And again she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived and bore again another son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah, then ceased bearing. It's by this time in verse 31 that we get the first actual mention of God. When the Lord saw that saw Leah was hated, he opened her womb. And we don't know, the Bible doesn't tell us what the conversation looked like between Laban and Leah and Rachel for when he was going to do the old swisheroo and bring Leah into the tent with Jacob. We don't know if she went in willingly, if she said, no, I don't want to do that. And he said, you're going to do what I tell you to so I can get more work and I can marry you off. But Laban and Leah somehow work this out together and he forces Leah upon Jacob and says, now I've married off my worthless daughter. And here, Leah, instead of being met with open and loving arms and Jacob doing his duty and being a loving and caring and protecting husband, Scripture says that she was hated and that God looked upon her. We'll read in the coming chapters that there's this birth wars that are going to go on and Leah is not as innocent as she may appear to be in this passage, but in this particular moment, she is hated, unloved, uncared for, married, and still alone. And yet, in that moment of aloneness, Yahweh sees her, that he is the God who is close, the one who rescues, the one who enters into covenant relationship with those who do not deserve it, that he is a good shepherd and a gentle, loving savior, that he ministers to the brokenhearted and it doesn't get much more brokenhearted than Leah even those whose hearts are broken because of their own sin. God says, Leah, I know your pain. You have been given an impossible role to play 
and I know, and I care, and God responds to her pain by opening her womb. Leah seems in this chapter to be the only one who is God-conscious. She's the only one who talks about God and that she hopes that her husband will now love her because she's giving something that Rachel can't. She's providing children. She's bearing children for him. She's trying to find satisfaction in a relationship with Jacob. She says, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I've borne him three sons. And therefore his name shall be called Levi. And then verse 35, and then she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. And then she ceased bearing. After the fourth son she bore, she focuses in on the one person who continually loved her and cared for her and the one who will not disappoint her, God alone. And although Leah was unloved and uncared for, this son Judah will be reason for great praise for the descendants who will come through Jacob. It won't be King David, it won't be King Solomon, but it will be King Jesus. And we can look in this passage and we can see that, so Leah's looking for satisfaction in a husband. And Jacob's looking for satisfaction in a beautiful wife. Pastor Timothy Keller, when commenting on this passage, says, the human life is cosmic disappointment unless you're searching for God. Meaning that everything we look at to find satisfaction and joy in this world will just lead to disappointment. But satisfaction in God is something that will last forever and bring true joy. And God loved the rejected and neglected wife of Jacob and made her the ancestral mother of God's only son, Jesus the Jesus who will save his people from their sins. <laughs> what sinners they are. All of us. Liars, cheats, haters, hated, broken, brokenhearted, weary, heavy laden. And God looks at us in all of our messes that we cause and says, I will rescue you. I care for you. You may feel unloved, but I love you that God has been working throughout all of history to bring everything that is written to pass. That Genesis 29 is much more than a bad love story. It's much more than a story of deception and deceit. It is a story, the human history story, that God is graciously working out his sovereign plan to save sinners like Jacob, like Laban, like us. And friends, you can lean on a God like that who looks and sees you in your brokenness, in your weakness, and says, I still love you. You're in this situation because of your own sinfulness, and I still love you that his love is continual, it is unending, it will not cease. 
And you can lean on a God like that who calls sinners like you and me to him and changes us. That's the best part. He, he calls us to himself and then says, I'm going to work in you to sanctify you, meaning to make you more like Jesus. And he changes us for his glory. And you need him. I need him. Because without him, life is just cosmic disappointment. It seems pointless. And if it isn't obvious enough that he loves us so much, he cares for us that he says, come, all of you who are weary, who are heavy laden, and I will do great things through you. Not because you bring anything to the table. Not because you're all cleaned up. Not because you have all these skills, but because I love you for who you are and who I created you to be. That you do have value. That you are loved. That you are cared for. And friends, God is working out his plan this morning. I believe that's why he has brought us all here this morning to hear from him. Not from me, to hear from him and his word that we might be changed by it. Let us close in prayer.